The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. It is God the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand the important doctrines and principles of God's Word. Jesus promised the apostles that he would be sending the Holy Spirit when he ascended to heaven, and that it would be the Holy Spirit who would guide them into all truth. It is the, one of the primary functions of God the Holy Spirit in the church age to help each believer understand Bible doctrine, how it applies to their life, to help us recall it at important times. Now, whenever we sin, we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit, so it's always important to make sure we're in fellowship. And our principle is in 1 John 1.9, if we confess, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sins in the privacy of our own soul, the privacy of our priesthood, to God the Father, that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we always take a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that uh, if we need to, we've used 1 John 1.9, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this time to be with you and your word today, that we can focus on your word as God the Holy Spirit teaches us. Lord, this is the ultimate in fellowship and the real meaning of fellowship in the scriptures, that we fellowship with you around your word, what you have communicated to us. Now, Father, as we study these things today, we pray that you would help us to understand them and see how they relate to our own lives and thinking that we may be challenged, that our thinking might be renovated by your word, and that we might continue to grow towards spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you didn't realize it last time, as we're studying through this last judge in the series of judges in the book of Judges, Samson is a great encouragement to every one of us. All of us fail at times. All of us Uh, have sin natures that we allow to gain the upper hand at times. 
hopefully few of us run around our Christian life like Samson did. But if God used Samson, and he did, the key to understanding it is that Samson is a God used Samson despite Samson's carnality. And so there was relatively little blessing that accrued to Samson. Nevertheless, God used him, and it shows that, that there is tr- tremendous forgiveness and God's grace despite all of our sin, despite all of our failures, that God is a God of grace. His, his relationship to us is never based on who we are or what we do. It's based completely on who he is and what Christ did for us on the cross. So we find ourselves in, well, in the wrong projection this morning. First John comes second hour. So we'll just have to take a minute and pull up Judges, and then we'll be ready to go. First Samuel chapter 13 is talking about grace. We looked at the starting point of it last time as we come to this sixth cycle. And what stands out as unique in this cycle is that it is not marked by a cry of the Jews to God to deliver them. They are under divine discipline and the oppression of the Philistines. But nevertheless, they don't cry out to God. In fact, they are more concerned with assimilating to the Philistines than in living a distinct life that God called them to. So we've looked at this cycle that goes on and on through this book, from disobedience to discipline to deliverance. But here God sends a new judge, and it's stated in 13.5 that he begins to deliver Israel. There is no completion to the deliverance in the time of Samson. What we see is, this cycle has continued from Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. This, is, this episode is really the end of the book of Judges. And then starting in chapter 17, we have two uh, appendices. And what has happened in the main part of this book from chapter 3, verse 6, down through the end of chapter 16 is that God is focusing on how the leadership in the land had succumbed to relativism. Relativism was the basic problem. The key verse stated twice in this book is that there was no king, and that really refers to God as the king, as the theocratic king of Israel. Israel had rejected God as the absolute authority in the land, and so they had rejected God and put themselves in God's place. There was no king in the land. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And Samson is a vivid picture of how everyone is doing exactly what they want to do. They have decided on what their own standards are, and they have rejected divine standards. And so again and again and again, as we go through Samson, we're going to see how he he just has an extremely uh, cavalier attitude towards uh, God and towards his word, and he just disobeys it uh, willingly. We saw this chart as well to give us a time frame that Samson lives at the end of the period of the judges and his life overlaps that of Samuel. Samuel will be the judge who brings the deliverance from the Philistines. That occurs at the Battle of Mizpah in 1084 B.C. That's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 7. 
but Samson does not deliver them. They are contemporary. Samuel is living up in the highlands, and during this time that Samson is carrying out his lust pattern in the southwestern part of Israel, Samuel is going throughout the land teaching the word. And so he is laying the groundwork for the cause for their ultimate deliverance, and that is the people return to doctrine, return to positive volition, and then God delivers them. And he will deliver them first through uh, uh, Samuel as the judge, and then ultimately and finally during David's kingship. To orient ourselves again to the geography, this is a map of Israel. Over here is the Salt Sea the Dead Sea. Uh, Jerusalem is located right about where you see the arrow pointing up on the screen. That's just south of Jericho. The area that we're concerned with is along the coast over here. This is the stronghold of the Philistines, the five cities of the Philistines down here. Gaza is one of those cities, and we know that name is still used today in reference to the Gaza Strip. But this area along the coast is dominated by the Philistines, This area right here to the west of Bethel, to the north of of Hebron, was the original allotment for the tribe of Dan. And Samson is from the tribe of Dan. Here on the map we have marked the village of Timnah, which is where he finds his, uh, his first wife. This is a little closer view, a little from a different map of, uh, of the Central Highlands. Here we have uh, Jerusalem is located here. It's called Jebus, which is the older name before the Jews came in. And then Zora is where Samson is from. And this area is only about 20 miles or so from the coast. So you can tell that it's a very small geographical area. And there's not much of a distinction between the area where the Jews dominated and where the Philistines dominated. This map seems to indicate there was a strong boundary, and there wasn't. It was just as if we were Jews living here, and the Philistines lived up by Jewett City, and there was no boundary. People, commerce, culture flowed back and forth, and that was part of the problem, is that the Philistines were seeking to simply absorb the Jews culturally, because that had been their standard modus operandi, and we studied the background of the Philistines and how they were originally a Hamitic tribe descending from uh, Noah's son Ham and eventually they began to merge and absorb other tribes that were Japhitic in nature uh, and were uh, Greek background and so there was just a cultural mix there and they'd absorbed various gods and for the first time instead of Israel being under the oppression of a nation, they are they're assimilating and absorbing the nation, and it is all happening right here in this border country. Here is Zora, where uh, Samson's parents are from. Here's Timnah, six miles away, and most of the action takes place in this area, although some moves down here to the south in Gaza and over to Hebron. All this is covered in an area uh, not more than 10 or 12 miles. This is a little closer view, looking at the same scene where we have the road from Zora to Timnah, only six miles apart. Now, we saw last time that Samson goes down to Timnah where he sees this 
good-looking young lady, daughter of one of the Philistines, and he came back to his parents and insisted that they go down and make her his wife. So that reflects the fact that probably he has not even spoken to her yet. He just saw her, and he comes back and demands of his parents to arrange the marriage. And that was standard in Israel. And as we can tell or infer from this passage is that even though uh, there was always an arranged marriage, it was never one that was necessarily just imposed on the individuals. They might know each other. They might have spent some time together, but the parents nevertheless arranged marriages, and even though young people often um, reject the notion that parents know who is good or not good for them to marry, parents, especially parents who are uh, engaged with their children, unfortunately today that's not true, but parents who are truly engaged with their children often know their children better than they know themselves. And it's not always a bad thing for parents to arrange marriages because often they can tell uh, things about the prospective partner that the young, inexperienced 20- or 25-year-old may not be able to perceive. They also know their own son or daughter pretty well so they can understand their areas of strength and their areas of weakness and what their tendencies are. And too often today people get married at such young ages they haven't figured out who they are yet or who the other person is, and they just end up making terrible mistakes because they get married at uh, too early of an age. I think that um, you ought to wait till you're almost 30 before you get married just be- because you have to figure out where you're going in life. One, I, I, it's an amazing statistic. I think less than 20% of people end up getting going into a field of work that they majored in in college. And when you go off to college, you're 18, 19, 20 years of age. You decide what you want to do for the rest of your life. You major in it. And within two years of being out of college, you're in a completely different field. And yet, the Scriptures dictate that in terms of marriage, the, the man is the one who is the leader in the home, and the woman is designed primarily to be the helper, the assistant of the husband. And she is to help him be all that he is to be in God's plan. Now, that means you have to have some understanding as a wife or as a young woman who is looking at a prospective husband of what will be involved in that individual's future life and future career. So that if you're going to marry someone who is going to go to medical school and be a doctor or be a lawyer, you know that they are going to be involved in a career that is going to take an enormous amount of time. There may be other benefits financially, but in terms of time, you're, going to, you're not going to be able to spend a lot of time together. There's going to be a lot of sacrifice in that area, and the same is true in many other, other professions, and there are different demands placed on, on the husband. So you have to know where that guy is going so that you know whether or not you want to help him get there. And at the age of 24 or 25, I don't think too many men know really where they are headed or have the spiritual maturity yet to have an understanding of that role. And so you often find that, that people get married at 20 or 21, and then five or six or eight years later, they're going completely different directions. And part of it is because they have just gotten married before they either figured out who they were or where they were going in life, and they just made the leap uh, way too soon. And then we have the other problem demonstrated by Samson, which is the attraction is based purely on physical 
attributes and has little to do with soul love. And for there to be any kind of happiness or endurance in a marriage, it has to be based on uh, an affinity of soul. There needs to be a soul love there, not based on superficial things such as the details of life or physical attractiveness, because physical attractiveness is only going to last for a short amount of time. If you think about getting married in your 20s, and you'll probably be married, as we've just seen with Dave and Marguerite, 60 years. And just think of how much of that time, especially now as people live older and older into their 80s and in many cases into their 90s, and with all of the health problems that come along with that, you need to realistically look at the fact that this is someone that you may spend the last 20 years of your life with taking care of them. Or they may be taking care of you, or you may be taking care of one another. And I see that with my own parents, and I've seen it with many other parents. And the foundation that is laid for that kind of of, uh, loyalty and devotion through those difficult times is laid in those early years. And if there's no real substantive character or integrity or honor, which ultimately can only come from Bible doctrine then there are going to be many problems later on in life. And today we're looking at a breakdown of marriage in our, in our culture. And uh, just recently, uh, the statistics came out that more than uh, there are more single women in this country than widows. Which is, and they're single many t- times because of divorce. And so we're, looking at, we're going to look at a tremendous sociological shift that takes place in our culture by the time most of us are in our 60s and 70s, there will be large numbers of single people, many of whom, because of uh, decline in birth rate during the uh, 80s and 90s, many of whom don't even have children. And so there will be a tremendous burden on the state, and there will be a hue and cry for the state to take up the slack of health care and and providing for these people instead of uh, traditionally the family would have a major role in taking care of people uh, as they get into uh, those later years. So marriage starts breaking down. And we see this exemplified in Samson. Samson is a picture of all the societal problems that come into Israel as a result of their paganism and because they have apostatized. And so we see all of these problems exemplified in Samson. And that they, as a nation, they have failed to do what God had called them to do. And one principle that we were reminded of last time is that Samson goes after an unbeliever, and this violates an Old and New Testament principle that there should not be a marriage between believer and unbeliever. In the New Testament, we're told in 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. Ultimately, what two people have in common should flow from the most important issues in life. And if you can't share what you believe spiritually with your spouse, then you are going to be doomed to an extremely superficial relationship and superficial marriage. And so, parents, you should make it a real point. You should talk, with your, talk it over with your children a long time before they ever get to be in their uh, dating years, you should start preparing them when they're four, five, and six years old, just by little things you can't you drop here and there, that they're never going to be allowed to go out with an with a an unbeliever. 
lay that foundation early. If you wait on a lot of issues until um, your children are in their adolescent years, you've waited too long. You need to prepare them mentally for those things when they're very young, when they're more ready to accept that from you as the authority, not when they hit 13 or 14 and all their friends are doing something and they have that peer pressure on them. Well, in Judges 14.3 last time, we saw that, that, that um, Samson told his parents to go get her for me. She looks good to me. And literally what that says at the end of verse, four, at the end of verse 3 is that she is good in my eyes. And that reminds us of the theme of Judges, which is everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Now, it also is an indication from the author in verse 4. We have this editorial insight into his parents. His father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, for he was seeking an occasion that is, God was using this. Despite Samson's carnality, God is still using him to develop trouble amongst the Philistines. And this tells us that God's plan is not restricted or limited by our failures. God is still going to accomplish His plan. The issue is, are we going to be part of it where there is blessing accrued to our own spiritual life? Or is God going to use us despite our carnality and rebellion? One way we get blessing, the other way we get discipline. And one of the things we will see with, with uh, Samson is that he is going to have a miserable life and he is going to be ultimately a spiritual failure because of his own self-centeredness and self-absorption. Now, of course, the question that always comes up is when you read in Hebrews chapter 11 that Samson is listed there, we learn that there were some times, obviously, in Samson's life where Samson trusted God. And so he's praised for that. There was, there was something there that was worthwhile. But the author of Judges doesn't seem to indicate when those times were. That doesn't fit his purpose. We know from from uh, Hebrews, that Samson wasn't the 100% loser that he appears to be in the book of Judges. But, nevertheless, here we see him pictured in all of the glory of his failure, just as the nation is in failure. So we're told in verse 4 that his father and mother were spiritually dense. They did not realize that God was working behind this. And so from their perspective, they're not going along with God's plan either. They're just sitting back and letting Samson rule their lives. These are parents who never taught authority orientation to their kid, and they are now suffering for it in his adolescent years. We're told in verse 5 that they went down to Timnah, and the, the passage says they went as far as the vineyards of Timnah. And we are reminded that Samson was a Nazarite and he was not supposed to go anywhere near the grapevines. He wasn't supposed to drink wine. He wasn't supposed to eat grapes. He wasn't supposed to have any contact with grapes, vines, or anything whatsoever. Second, he wasn't supposed to have contact with anything dead, with a carcass. And that is going to be violated in this next little episode. So they went to the vineyards and somehow they were separated because his parents aren't aware of this next little episode. And out of the vineyard comes a lion. And this lion assaults, uh, assaults Samson. And at that instant, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. And the Hebrew means he rushed upon him. 
And this is not for sanctification, like the role the Holy Spirit is in the New Testament. This is to give him the ability to kill the lion. And this is to provide Samson with an indication that he has the kind of physical strength necessary in order to defeat the Philistine. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he tore the lion as one tears a kid, though he had nothing in his hand, but he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. He is silent about it. Now, there are some, some people suggest, well, when he killed it, at that instant he's, he's violating his vow because he's touching a carcass. But that's not the emphasis at this point. That will be the emphasis in the next verse. Later, after they had gone to Timnah, after they had arranged the courtship, he goes back, he, they returned home, apparently, and um, he's going back on a second visit to the girl. When he returned later to take her, this is on the way back, on the way to the uh, wedding feast, he turns aside out of curiosity to look at the carcass of the lion. And it is at this point that he is going to violate the Nazarite vow a second time by touching the carcass and defiling himself. And what we really see in this section is the, a, a threefold sin on Samson's part. First of all, he is forbidden by the Mosaic law from touching a carcass. Every Israelite was. If you touch something dead, then it rendered you ceremonially unclean. You had to perform a sacrifice for cleansing. And the reason was that death always was a reminder of the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin is spiritual death. Its consequence is physical death. And so whenever they came in contact with someone who was dead, they were ceremonially unclean. They couldn't go into the presence of God without a sacrifice. And the picture there is that we as believers can't go into the presence of God when we have been defiled by sin. And so there were hundreds and hundreds of ways in which a Jew could defile himself and become ceremonially unclean. And if you read through Leviticus, you scratch your head sometimes and think, man, could I do anything? Could I go through life at all without having to go to the temple or tabernacle and perform a sacrifice every day? And you think it's difficult trying to keep track of your sins and just using 1 John 1, 9. Just think of the fact that every time you use 1 John 1, 9, if you had to go to the tabernacle and... Uh, bring an offering or have a burnt offering for forgiveness at that time, some of us would be running back and forth to the tabernacle every day and we wouldn't get any work done. And that was God's point, is that we are completely polluted by sin and we need to recognize our helplessness and sinfulness and that we are completely dependent upon His grace. So the first sin of Samson is that he just, as a Jew, he violates the Mosaic law. Secondly, he violates the Nazarite vow, and he's touching the carcass. He's not supposed to have any contact with the carcass. And then the third thing is what he's going to do with the honey. He's going to give it to his parents without telling them where it came from, and that causes them to become ceremonially unclean, but they're ignorant of it. It's a, it's a sin of ignorance on their part because of what he has done. So there's a threefold sin involved in what happens with the bees and the lion. And he discovers that there's a swarm of bees and honey in the body of the lion. Now, this ought to immediately catch our attention because, as I said last time, bees do not make uh, their, their nest, their hives in a carcass. A carcass is decomposing. It's in a, it's in a wet, moist environment and you don't find a swarm of bees in the body of the lion. So something 
uh, miraculous must have taken place to have dried out and dehydrated this carcass immediately so that it would be an, become an attractive home for these bees. The other thing that arrests our attention in verse 8, we don't see it in the English, but we do in the Hebrew, and that is that the word for swarm here is not the normal word for a community of bees. It is the Hebrew word edah, which usually means a community of people, and it is applied many times to the community of Israel. And so the author is using this to draw an illustration, and that is that just as Israel went into a land that was uh, polluted and corrupted by the Canaanites and the Philistines, and they were supposed to, by following God's mandates, produce a land of prosperity flowing with milk and honey, uh, so too God has brought forth honey out of the place where there is death, out of this carcass. And so it is a picture for us of what Israel should have been, but what they were not uh, at that time. And so it's once again a reminder that God is the God who in grace brings forth life where there is death. Now, when we see the honey, it ought to remind us of several passages in the Old Testament. For example, in Exodus 3, verse 8, we're told that God told, the, told Moses, So I have come down to deliver them, that is, the Jews, from the power of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. God was going to turn the land of Canaan, which was a land dominated by uh, idolaters, and a land of spiritual death into a land of prosperity, and a land that was the recipient of His grace. This is reiterated again in Deuteronomy 8, 8, where we read a land of wheat and barley. And I said last time, remember that when we get into the rest of this chapter. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. So we see this reminder here. When we read the honey, we ought to think about God's purpose for Israel. Then in verse 7, So he went down and talked to the woman, and she looked good to Samson. She was good in his eyes. And when he, and then, excuse me, I'm skipping ahead, verse 9. After he discovers the swarm of bees and the honey and the body of the lion, we're told, so he scraped the honey into his hands, and that's a good translation. He just scooped it out. He doesn't pay any attention to the fact that it's in a carcass. He just reaches in there, he ignores the, the bees, and he scrapes out and scoops out large amounts of honey and goes on eating it as he went. And here's a picture of a man who is just consumed with his own personal desires. He's hungry, and we just picture him. He's got his honey just dripping off of his arms, and he's just feeding it in his face, and he's got honey all over him. And he, he's just a rather crude and crass individual. He's self-absorbed. He's, he doesn't care about anything but satisfying his own pleasures at the moment. So verse 10, we're told, Then his father went down to the woman, and Samson made a feast there. So they get together to prepare for the wedding feast. The young men customarily did this. Verse 10 is an edit, 10b is an editorial note. And it came about when they saw him. This would be the Philistines. When the other Philistines and Timnah saw him coming, apparently he already had a bit of a reputation we don't know what it was because the, the author is silent about different key events in, in Samson's life. Everything that occurs in 14 and 15 occurred within a very short amount of time, probably within just a couple of months. 
And yet we're told that Samson judged Israel for 20 years. So uh, we can imagine that there were various exploits of Samson before this, that he was showing off his strength, and so that he did have some bit of a reputation. And so they're concerned about the fact that this, this man with this tremendous strength is going to be in their presence, so they want to make sure that he doesn't get out of control. So in verse 11, came about when they saw him that they brought 30 companions to be with him. Now, these companions are not their buddies. They're not coming along and saying, oh, let's invite some more of our friends. No, they want to make sure Samson doesn't get out of control, so they're bringing 30 bodyguards to watch Samson. They know he's too much for any one of them, so they're going to bring these 30 bodyguards there to keep him under control. They're basically 30 bouncers, so if he starts getting drunk and losing control, they're going to be able to take care of him at the party. came about when they saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. Now, Samson probably was, perhaps, was, seems to be a little offended by this, so he decides to propose a riddle. And Samson said to them, verse 12, Let me now propound a riddle to you. Now, this fits the historical context. Uh, some of us, some of you who are a little older as I am, remember, uh, can look back on your life, and there are different trends that have taken place over the years. Now, when I was thinking about this this week, and we all remember back, uh, those of you who are younger, well, well, you'll just think we were a little bit nuts, but you remember back in the early 60s, there was a period of time within, about, within a year period when it was very popular to tell elephant jokes. Now, some of you are dating yourselves when you say you remember that. But any time you talk about that, you can, you can isolate that to a period from about 1963, 1962. And that's when it occurred. It was real popular. And all of the, they were always printing these books with these elephant jokes in them. And, um, and so anything that, that referred to elephant jokes, you could date to that period of time. Well, during this period in history, we know that among the Greeks and among other peoples in the Mediterranean area, telling riddles and proposing riddles was a popular sport. They, they would sit around and try to outdo each other with these riddles, and they would, they would bet and gamble on who could come up with the best riddle that would stump everybody. So when Samson comes along and develops this riddle, we know that it fits the historical context of about 1200, 1100 B.C. This was a very popular thing to do at that time. So you can't do like the liberals do and late date this. Oh, somebody just wrote this and made it up later on. Samson's telling of the riddle here and all the episodes, and this is crucial to understanding all the dynamics of these two chapters. It all revolves around this riddle. And it fits the historical context of about 1100 to 1200 B.C. So he proposes a riddle, and he puts a wager on it. If you will indeed tell me, give me the answer to the riddle, that is, within the seven days of the feast, so this is going to be a seven-day wedding feast, and, uh, and the word for the feast is a Hebrew word, mishtah, which refers to a seven-day feast of drinking and gorging. So it's a seven-day feast of drinking and gorging, and the suggestion or the inference is that Samson is not sitting back in a corner watching everybody else uh, gluttonize and get drunk. He is right in there with everybody else having a field day, uh, feeding his own uh, physical appetites. 
So if you will indeed tell it to me, answer the riddle within the seven days of this drunken feast, and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. To put that in our parlance, he's going to buy them 30 suits. Each one of them, he will buy a new suit. And he says, if you are unable to tell me, if you can't answer the riddle, then you shall give me 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. So they said, okay, tell us the riddle. We'll figure it out. So he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong something sweet. And that's the riddle. What did it come out of? That's what he wants to know. Out of the eater came something to sweet, and out of the strong came something, or excuse me, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. So what is he talking about? And for three days, they're stumped. They have no idea what this could refer to. And, of course, he sort of loaded it because he's referring to something that no one else knew anything about. He hadn't even told his parents about the episode with the lion. So it's almost impossible for anyone to figure out this riddle. In verse 15, it came about on the fourth day that they got together. These 30 guys got together and they got his, his bride off to the side, and they said, okay, we're going to make you a deal. Entice your husband that he may tell us the riddle, lest we burn you in your father's house. So they're going to intimidate and threaten her. This is early uh, form of uh, extortion. You either tell us, find out the answer, or you're going to die, and your father's going to die, and they're going to threaten them with burning them out. Verse 16, so Samson's wife is quite disturbed over all of this and upset. And so she begins to play on Samson's emotions. You know, always watch out for anybody who says, if you really love me, then do this. You know, always beware of that. She just says, if you really love me, Samson, you'll tell me the answer to the real, so I'll know. And she begins to cry, and she begins to uh, play on his sympathies, and he finally breaks down. And what we see here is a clear sign of Samson's area of weakness toward women. And she tells him, she said, you just hate me. You don't love me. You have propounded this riddle to the sons of my people, and you haven't even told me about it. And he said, well, don't take it so personally. It's not a problem with you. I haven't even told my parents, so why should I tell you? And so for the next three days, she continues. Verse 17 says, however, she wept before him seven days while the feast lasted. And that's just a it doesn't mean she wept for seven days. It's the remainder of the seven days of the feast. So for another three days, she is weeping before him and uh, cajoling him and constantly badgering him. Remember, we're told in Proverbs that there's nothing worse than a, than a nagging woman. It's like a dripping faucet. And that's, uh, it's better to live in the attic than with a nagging woman. And uh, so he finally gives in. He breaks down. And he came about on the seventh day that he told her because she pressed him so hard. And then she went out and betrayed him by telling that to the people. This is just another important principle, just an aside here, that marriage is an institution based on trust. And that means that there are many things that go on between a husband and a wife that need to be kept in privacy between the husband and wife. The husband should not be going and telling 
about any problems at home to any of his friends at work or any of his buddies. And neither should a woman be going around talking about any problems at home or any problems with her husband to other people. Now, there are, there, you may have a friend who is a confidant whom you trust who will not say anything to anybody. And there are times when you, if you're really struggling with some problem, you might uh, be communicating that to a close friend for prayer, for encouragement, for insight. But basically, we need to keep our mouths shut about anything that's going on in marriage and maintaining the privacy of what goes on in the marriage. Because... Hopefully, things will work out if there are problems. No matter how horrible the other person might have been, things might work out. And if you have gone around telling people what they have done, now they've got two problems. Number one, restoring trust over whatever violation there was to begin with in the marriage. And then secondly, now everybody knows about it, and they've got a bad reputation because of that. That's why it's important to maintain privacy. I've seen situations in marriages where there was a marriage problem that was serious, but not uh, one that they couldn't recover from. But because the the, uh, wife told everybody what the husband had done, and it wasn't that extreme or serious, but it created such a uh, social problem that it made it almost impossible for the marriage to recover. And simply because now, instead of just having the problem that was between the husband and wife, now there's a problem with everybody, and everybody's always got their opinions as to what he should do. And so it just made life relatively intolerable for this individual. And so we need to maintain privacy, and that's part of the trust that should be in a marriage. And she violates that. They're not even married yet, and she's already betraying him to her people. Verse 18, So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And there's a, there's a word, all through this whole section, the writer of Judges is using various word plays and various uh, paranomasias in order to bring out certain points. And the point here is, once again, what is sweeter, there's, a double, there's sort of a double entendre here, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? Well, what is sweeter than honey is the grace of God, and what is stronger than a lion is the power of God. And so there are these little hints here that, 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 that Samson is violating both, and that God is there to, to deliver Israel, but there is a continuous rejection by the Jews of the grace of God and the power of God. Well, he then responds. He knows instantly why they were able to solve the, the riddle, because... Of they had gone to his wife. Now, he makes a statement then that is very derogatory of her. It was considered insulting even by their standards. And once again, we see that in a pagan culture, there is always a, a loss of respect and value for the role of women, for the role of wives, and the role of mothers. And over and again, we have seen this gradual shift in judges moving from Othniel and his wife Oxa at the beginning of the book, where she is very respectful, she's held in high honor, she respects her parents, and she, there's nothing negative said about her until we come towards the end now of judges and women, are, especially with, with Samson, we see women are treated as nothing more than objects for his own pleasure, and he has no, no respect for women. And so this destruction of 
respect for women and the role of women is a result of paganism. It's a result of, of a failure to understand what the Bible teaches about the importance of both the man as a man and the woman as a woman and their distinct roles in society, in marriage, and in the family. So he has no respect for her. He just says, if you hadn't plowed with my heifer. So he just calls her a heifer and shows that he has no respect and no, does not treat her with any value at all. And this was considered insulting even at that time. So he just, is, again, comes across as an extremely crude and crass individual. So if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And then in verse 19, immediately in contrast to that, we're told, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. So we see the Spirit of God still working through him, but it's not in terms of spiritual value. The Spirit of the Lord has a, God has a plan, and that is to disrupt this assimilation that's taking place between the Philistines and the Jews. And that is God's role, is to use Samson to stir up trouble. So this doesn't mean that the Spirit of the Lord is coming upon him because Samson is so spiritual or because Samson has been so obedient. In fact, just the opposite is the case. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily and went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of them. This is another town further down the coast. He kills another 30 Philistines and takes their clothes. He doesn't have the money to, to buy a suit of clothes for these 30, so he goes and steals them by killing 30 Philistines. And this, in turn, is going to set a whole chain of events in motion. Or really, the chain of events was set in motion back when he saw the girl, and this just continues the line of causation. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. He goes down, he kills these 30, takes their clothes, and he comes back and gives them to those who, who told him the answer to the riddle. And then we're told his anger burned, and he went up to his father's house. So he's dominated by mental attitude sins. He's acting like a selfish, spoiled child. He gets angry because he didn't get his way. He leaves this, his fiancée, and he goes back to his father's house. And in verse 20, we're told that Samson's wife was given to his companion, who has been his friend. So his, his best man gets the girl, and they get married. Now, verse, 15, uh, verse 1 of chapter 15. But after a while, in the time of wheat harvest, it came about that Samson visited his wife. Now, I want you to notice it's in the time of the wheat harvest. He makes a point of that because of what will take place in this chapter. It came about that Samson visited his wife with a young goat and said, I will go into my wife in her room, but her father did not let him enter. So apparently he had the idea that she, this was more of a concubine marriage. See, the difference between a regular marriage and a concubine marriage was in a regular marriage you, you, you moved in together and you set up a home and began a family. In a concubine marriage, it had a legal status. It's not like a prostitute or a mistress, but it's a legal status, but not on the same level of a wife. And you didn't live with the concubine. We saw that with Gideon. Gideon had a concubine down in Shechem. He didn't live with her, but she was legally uh, his. It's as lower level than a wife, but still has a legal status. So he's thinking this is like a concubine marriage, and he can just come and go whenever he pleases. So he goes down there, but her father who won't let it happen. Father said, I thought you hated her so intensely. I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister 
more beautiful than she. Please let her be yours instead. And we see how he's treating his daughters like property here. So we see, once again, a negative view of women. Verse 3, Samson then said to them, This time I shall be blameless in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So now he's going to... He, he, he's going to get involved in vengeance. He's, going to, he's mad that he's done this, so he's going to take it out on the Philistines. And in verse 4, he went and caught 300 foxes. Now, this isn't foxes in the Greek. It's, I mean, in the Hebrew, it's jackals. J- foxes are solitary creatures. If you were going to catch 300 foxes, it might take quite a bit of time because they live alone. But jackals run in packs, so you could set up traps to catch uh, large numbers of, of jackals and now we're, we're told there are, a lot, there are apparently a lot of jackals in this area, and we also had a lion. Now, one of the things that God had promised Israel was that if they went into the land, and if they were obedient to him, he would destroy all of the wild animals, and they would have peace there. But if they were disobedient to him, that part of the third and fourth cycle of discipline, there would be an increase in the, in the wild animals that were in the land. And uh, just as a note, it's always interesting that under our modern environmentalist-dominated uh, country, we want to restore wild animals like red wolves and bears into civilized areas, not realizing that the removal of these destructive animals is part of divine blessing, and the reintroduction of them is like, like, like we're, we're, we're wanting to bring divine discipline on ourselves. Let, here, let's help out, God. I'll just put the paddle in your hands. So... Uh, we have no under, it just shows once again we have no understanding of how, of how God works. So the presence of all these jackals and the presence of the lion is another subtle reminder to the reader that the land is under divine discipline. So Samson catches the 300 jackals and he takes a torch. Now how he did this is a mystery. He ties their tails together, takes a, takes a rope, ties it onto the... Uh, Torch, then ties the two ends of the rope onto the jackal, to each tail of the, of the jackal, and then lights the torch and turns them loose into the fields. Now it's the time of the harvest, so there's cut wheat and there is still wheat on the stalks in the fields. And he turns them loose, and you can imagine how they ran through the fields. One runs one way, the other runs the other way, a zigzag pattern, and they're dragging this torch behind them as they run all over the the field, and everything is caught on fire. So verse 5 states, when he had set fire to the torches, he released the the jackals into the standing grain of the Philistines. This is what they had already cut. Thus burning up the shocks and the standing grain, along with the vineyards and groves. Now remember what God had said to Israel. They would be in the land. They would have grain, vineyards, groves, olives, and honey. And so what God is doing is he's destroying the produce of the Philistines. They don't have a right to it because this isn't your land. You are uncircumcised. This is the land that I have given to Israel. So the Philistines, of course, respond in anger. First one act of of vengeance and then retaliation. They say, who did this? They found out it's Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite. Notice how they're blaming the Timnite. He didn't have anything to do with it. His father... Father-in-law is the one they blame. The son-in-law of the Timnite, because he took his wife and gave her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. See, Samson, they can't tackle Samson. He's too tough. So we're going to go 
the path of least resistance, and we're going to uh, burn up the girl and her father. And so presumably while they were in the house asleep, they set it on fire and burned it up. And that's going to bring about another act of retaliation from Samson. Since you act like this, I will surely take revenge on you, but after that I will quit. And what we see is the ongoing destructive cycle of mental attitude sins, hatred, bitterness, revenge, on and on, and it just creates more and more trouble. Now, the thing is, God's working behind this to bring about the separation of Israel from the Philistines. Verse 8, And he struck them ruthlessly with a great slaughter. We don't know how many he killed, but it was a large number, maybe close to a thousand at this point. We don't know. We, I'll tell you why I come to that when we get into the end of the story. When he kills over 2,000 at the Temple of Dagon, it says what he killed there was more than all of the others. So that would indicate that there's probably a large number here as well, less than a thousand though. He struck them ruthlessly with a great slaughter and went down and lived in the cleft of the rock of Edom. Now, this is where... We go back, let me back this up a little bit and go to another map, go back to our map. He's in this area up here at Timnah. He went over to Ashkelon down here on the coast, which is where he killed the 30 and took their suits of clothes and then brought them back to the men at Timnah. And now he is going to head over into the hill country of Judah over here to the southwest of Bethlehem. And somewhere in that area, we're not sure exactly where he would be, is this rock of Edom. Then the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and spread out in Lehi. So we know they're in the tribal zone belonging to Judah. Now, Samson's attitude here is, well, I've, I've killed them, I'm done, it's over with, and he just goes off to be by himself and to sulk. And he, he, every time he does something, it's as if, well, it's all over with. He has he, no foresight. He doesn't think beyond whatever is going on today. And he seems to be totally oblivious of the fact that God is using him in any of this. He's not aware that the Spirit of God, or there's no indication that he's aware that the Spirit of God is the source of his power at all. Totally self-absorbed. Verse 10. Or verse 9, now what happens is the Philistines come and camp in Judah. And look at the reaction of the men of Judah. Here's the enemy coming, and we know that they, they should understand this. It's not long after this, maybe in another five years or so, there's going to be a major pitched battle. And it's, at, 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 um, and it's that battle that is going, where the Philistines are going to capture the Ark of the Covenant and bring it back to the Temple of Dagon down in Gaza. So they know that there's an antagonism, that the Philistines are the enemy, but they're so pacifistic. Oh, oh wait a minute, wait a minute. You might come into our territory with your army, but, but oh, we're not going to fight you. Uh, we're just going to cave in. We're going to, in fact, we'll go find Samson for you. You see, there's some important principles that we need to understand about what's going on here. Is that the, the Philistines have given in to relativism. They have a completely relativistic culture, and they've absorbed all these different cultures, not, not in many ways not dissimilar to what's going on in 20, 21st century, late 20th century, early 21st century America. It, once every culture is viewed as being having valid truths, then all truths become are, all truths have an equal amount of weight and an equal amount of value. There is no truth then that is absolute. Everything 
is relative. And if in relativism, if everything is equally true, then everything is equally false. And this leads to an ecumenical mindset that it doesn't really matter what we believe just as long as we all believe something in God so, and all use the same terminology and we can all get together and doctrine is no longer an issue. And so everybody is just supposed to agree that everybody else is right and we all get together for the pure pleasure of being together. So in this ecumenical mindset... Truth doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is whatever experience we have in common. But if everything in life is relative, then nothing is worth dying for. And if nothing is worth dying for, nothing is worth fighting for. And if nothing is worth fighting for, then a major sin is going to be anybody who starts stirring up trouble and causing war. So war becomes an ultimate sin, and so in order to prevent that, what do you do? You disarm people so they can't fight. And that's what was going on during the time of the judges. We know from 1 Samuel 7 that what happened with the, uh, with the Philistines is they had entered into the Iron Age, but they would not allow the Jews to have a blacksmith. So they couldn't, the Jews then could not have iron weapons, and that meant they couldn't defend themselves, and they couldn't go to war. At least they didn't think they could go to war successfully against the Philistines. And so you keep seeing all these indications of extremely strange weapons at this time. For example, Shamgar used an ox goad. David is going to use a sling. We're not using this latest state-of-the-art equipment here, but God is the one who's given victory. And then Samson has one of the strangest weapons at all, and we're going to see that in just a minute. So the men in Judah don't have anything to fight for anymore, and so they are going to just cave in to the Philistines. And so pacifism always goes along with ecumenism. And that always goes along with relativism, because if there's nothing worth fighting for and dying for, then there's nothing, no, then there's no reason to get involved in any kind of warfare. And just as a note, remember, if you don't have anything that's worth dying for, then you don't have anything worth living for. And in relativism, the only thing worth living for is whatever is going to make you happy at the moment. And that's where we are today in our culture, is people are doing whatever makes them happy right now, whatever gives them personal pleasure now, and, and they have no, no concept of living for the future and the long-range consequences of present action. And in our time, the great sin is going to be the environment. It won't be long before war is going to be thought of as the greatest evil, simply because it would do such... Uh, environmental damage. And so anybody who would go to war is going to be considered an environmental criminal. And under the uh, guise of environmental protection, we're going to start uh, disarming because it would be so horrible to have these weapons. And, of course, we'll probably be the only nation that disarms, and other nations will have those arms, and then we will be in a position of weakness where we can be destroyed. And that seems to be the regular pattern of history. Anyhow, so the 3,000 men of Judah go down to get Samson, and they, um, they say, look, don't you know that the Philistines are rulers over us? Why are you causing all this trouble? And verse 12 says, we're going to bind you. 
So in verse 13, he says, Go ahead. they say, no, we will bind you fast and give you into their hands, but we won't kill you. So they bound him up, and they took him to the Philistines in Lehi, in verse 14. And then we're told, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that the ropes were on his arms were as flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds dropped from his hands. So he just, just flexed his muscles a little bit, and the ropes broke. And he found the fresh jawbone of a donkey. And he grabs this jawbone, and how he uses it as a weapon is beyond me. But he uses that as a weapon, and with it he kills a thousand men. I don't know if he stabbed them with it, or if he hit them over the head, or, or just how he used it. But with that jawbone, he killed a thousand men. And then he says, with the jawbone of a donkey, he has another riddle. With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a, of a donkey, I have killed a thousand men. And it came about when he had finished speaking that he threw the jawbone from his hand and he named that place Ramoth-Lehi. And then in verse 18, he became very thirsty and he calls to the Lord. And it seems at this point that there's something positive about Samson spiritually. He's crying out to the Lord much as, as uh, Moses did. And he's, he says, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. But even in his prayer, he's more concerned with himself, and he just seems to be giving lip service to God. But there is an, a, a, a small element in Samson's thought that he realizes that this comes as a result of God's provision. And he does cry out to God, and God does answer his prayer despite all of his carnality, because Samson's carnality is much smaller than the plan of God. And the plan of God is based on grace, and God's grace is going to eventually bring deliverance to Israel. But first, he still has something to accomplish with Samson. So God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, apparently a crack in the rock, so that the water came out of it. And when he drank, his strength returned, and he revived. Therefore, he named it in Hakor, which is in Lehi to this day. In Hakor means the spring of the one who calls. So he judged Israel. This is the conclusion of these two chapters. He judged Israel then for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Not anything more is told about Samson until we come to his end next time in chapter 16. The principle here is God's grace overcomes all of our failures. No matter how much we failed, God still is a God of grace. If we're still alive, God still has a plan for our life, and God still uses us. And so the issue is that whenever there's a problem, whenever there's a, we go through discipline, we need to realize that God is using it for a purpose, and that is to bring us back to himself. And that is what God is doing with, the, with Samson and the Jews, is to get their attention back on him. And eventually that will happen, but not under Samson's ministry, but under Samuel's ministry with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time together. Once again, to be reminded of your grace, that your grace is based on who you are, not on who we are or what we have done. And that is the issue at salvation. Salvation is not based on how good we are. It's not based on our morality. It's not based on church attendance or any other human good. It's based on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That on the cross, Jesus Christ died for our sins. He paid the penalty so that we could have eternal life. You provided everything for us, and that is grace. Salvation is by 
grace through faith, we are told, and, and that if anyone here is not sure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, then right now is the, their opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do is put your faith in Jesus Christ. Simply believe that He died on the cross for your sins, and you will have eternal life. Father, we pray that we would be challenged by the things that we have learned, and they would help us understand how you work in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.